Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from its earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. Now, when I was teaching or showing people around the museum, one of the interesting questions I get pretty often is this question of when did the Cold War start and when did it end? And or maybe did it even end at all? And, you know, I think recent events in Ukraine have really brought back a lot of these questions and and brought the relevance of the Cold War really to the front. And so to talk about that exact topic, we are joined today by Dr. John Curatola. He's the military historian for the Center for War and Democracy at the National World War II Museum and a retired U.S. Marine Corps officer. John, thanks for being here. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, we're really excited. We're talking about your new book. It's called Autumn of Our Discontent, Fall 1949 and the Crises in American National Security. Uh, So we really want to dive into this, like you say, this crisis moment. Now, one of the key documents that a lot of history nerds know about is NSC-68, but that's uh, maybe an obscure acronym that not everyone is familiar with. So for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about what is NSC-68 and why is that this crucial document and moment for, for what we're talking about? Absolutely. What NSC-68 does is it's signed by Harry Truman in the late summer of 1950 after the North Koreans come across the border. And basically what it does is it recognizes that America needs to spend a substantial amount of its GDP on defense. And more importantly, it is the recognition that the United States will now have a standing peacetime military, something that the Americans historically have never had. Uh, we, as a as a people, when we're founded, we're, we're kind of wary of large armies. They're, they're dangerous to democracies historically. And in our history, every time we had a war, we would build up the army and then tear it back down to a cadre-sized force. Revolutionary War, the army goes away for a while. The Civil War, it gets built up and then it's brought back down. The same thing with the First World War and not much different with the Second World War. However, as you mentioned in the intro, as the Cold War is starting to emerge, there's a recognition that we have to have a large standing military and a significant amount of money allocated to those military forces. And that's something that the the American experience is, has not had at all. So when Truman signs National Security Policy 68, he's basically send, he's saying that we now have to be a powerful military, standing military in the global environment to meet our new requirements in this emerging Cold War. Right. So this is such a key moment as you're talking about. And there are a lot of books about this. There's a lot of historians that have discussed this moment. So I'm curious how you got into this project and you know what you felt was missing from that discussion that uh, made you want to write the book. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I'll be honest with you. When I was doing my research as an undergrad, I was amazed by the amount or the, the number of events that was occurring in the fall of 1949 between the Soviet bomb, between the establishment of the PRC, People's Republic of China. I know that that war is leading up to, you know, October 1st, 1949. I got that. But that's when Mao plants his flag, October 1st, 1949. And then you have this controversy over the B-36. You have this 
controversy over the USS United States, a canceled aircraft carrier for the United States Navy. You have this study of the efficacy of strategic bombing done by the Weapon System Evaluation Group. You have this discussion over thermonuclear weapons occurring secretly all these things are happening in the fall of 1949. And as I was, you know, doing some of my initial research as a graduate student, it punched me in the face, you know, intellectually that, oh my God, look at the cross current here of all these events. And as a historian, you know, we, we look for synergies and, and how these things evolve over time. And what I saw was there was just this big mixing bowl of events that had to play into the development of the American psyche. And as I came uh, in my research of this book, that certainly was the case. These layers on layers on layers of issues that were coming to the fore required the national security apparatus to kind of review its place, its missions, its role, and more importantly, our role in the global environment. Yeah, absolutely. And you just went through this amazing list of these events and you unpack them in a lot of detail in the book. So I want to go through a few of them here and, and kind of unpack those. And starting with just coming out of World War II, this moment of the war ending, the atomic bomb has been dropped. And you note that in those immediate after war years, that aviation, and this is an air power show, so we got to talk about aviation. There but you go. Aviation really takes this kind of central place in U.S. defense planning, and it becomes kind of the core. So how and why did aviation have this, this uh, huge role to play in American defense? Yeah, what you see um, with the atomic bomb, one aircraft with one bomb now holds the amount of firepower that, you know, whole air armadas had. And the Air Force, you know, in 46 and 47 really believes that they were the decisive force in the war. Whether or not the Strategic Bombing Survey kind of equivocates, you know, on the, the use of strategic bombing. But if you're an Air Force officer, you definitely believe that that you were the decisive force. And in the book, you know, I make mention of a quote from uh, General Frank Armstrong when he's talking to a bunch of Navy officers. And I'll give you the quote here because it's such a fun quote. I had to include it in the book. He's here at the Naval Air Station in uh, Oceana. And he says, you gentlemen had better understand that the Air Force is no longer going to be a subordinate outfit. It was a predominant force during the war, and it's going to be the predominant force, whether you like it or not. And we don't care if you like it or not. The Air Force, Army, the Air Force is going to run the show. You Navy types are no longer going to have anything but a bunch of carriers, which are ineffective anyway, and will probably be sunk before the first battle. Wow. And so he's, yeah, that's a pretty strong statement. Yeah. Um, and what you see here is, is we're looking at warfare now as being air centric, atomic centric, and relatively quick and relatively cheap. And as you well know, these are some of the same arguments you saw in the interwar years mm -hmm. between the Navy and the Air Force. And they're renewed subsequent to the Second World War because the Air Force is really feeling, and many of the people in the public now see strategic air power as taking a, as being in the fore of military power. And many men in Congress feel the same way who own the purse strings, see the Air Force as our first line of defense. And so it, it grows in importance and you have this debate between naval power and air power. And the army kind of takes a back seat to a certain extent because we don't want to fight long drawn out battles like we just have done. 
We'd rather have something quick, uh, relatively cheap, and strategic bombing certainly provides that option to the American people. Right. So the one of the core ways that the Air Force is going to play out this strategy of coming to the fore, as, as that quote illuminates so well, is relying on this new airplane, the B-36 Peacemaker, this very controversial airplane. So that's crucial to the Air Force's plans. What makes the B-36 different and what was its role supposed to be? Yeah, it's interesting. The B-36 is actually, is actually a legacy airframe. You know, it, it has its its roots in the Second World War, uh, kind of a backup plan for the B-29. It's already flying. Its prototype is flying during the war. But it has, you know, the extended range and a much more capacity than the B-29s that are available. But because it's a legacy system, there's a lot of pushback that given new air defenses, given radar, given jet interception and integrated air defense, that this airplane is now already archaic, that it's already obsolete given what we think the Russians have in terms of integrated air defense. But we're going to spend $3 billion on this new airframe that a lot of people are saying it's already obsolete. And so that's where it's called the $3 billion gamble because there are those who are not air power friendly who have uh, a significant problem spending this amount of money for an airframe that is already deemed somewhat past its prime. And part of this is is the the Navy has this problem with it. And even those in the Air Force know that the B-36 isn't a great airplane given the emerging environment, but they see it as an interim aircraft until your B-47 and B-52 come online in the early 1950s. Yeah, so you mentioned the Navy and how there's this kind of growing rivalry and something that, you know, I'll never forget when I learned this for the first time because it surprised me, but the Navy was pursuing these kind of large atomic bomber aircraft. At the same time, you talk a little bit about the AJ-1 Savage, the P-2V Neptune. We don't always think of these aircraft when we think about big strategic bomber aircraft, but the Navy was doing a little bit of that. Can you tell us a little bit about those airplanes and and how their operational history played out? Yeah, this is the Navy's attempt to to get in on the atomic bomb business, and if if I might be, you know, tongue in cheek, um, because obviously the Air Force has the long range bombers and the capacity to lift these weapons, but the Navy does not want to be left out in the cold. It has its own air fleet, and of course, the Navy is very sensitive during this time of of unification in 1947 that it's going to be slighted, that the Air Force is going to grab all the air power, and that the Navy will stuck with only ships, and it will have no cover for its fleets, you know, on the oceans. And so it's very jealous of not only its air wings, but also the Marine Corps. And so in order to remain relevant in this new air-centric environment that we think future warfare will be, the Navy needs to prove that it can also play in the atomic delivery business. And she will develop You know, a couple of planes, and both of them are not really suited well for this uh, mission. The AJ-1 Savage is, is, it's a crappy airplane, okay? But it can take off of a carrier and carry, actually only carries a little boy bomb. But what people don't know, we don't have any little boy bombs in the stock anymore, but don't let that stop you. And then when they take the P-2V Neptune, it can take off from a carrier. It can't land on a carrier. It has to find either a land-based uh, runway to land on or ditch at sea and get the crew out. But this is a way for the Navy to say, we too can deliver atomic weapons. And the argument between the Air Force and the Navy is, the Air Force will argue, with our range, I can go into the heart 
of the Soviet Union deep into where their industrial capacities are with your smaller naval attack aircraft you can only hit the peripheries you can't go in deep and hit you know the the Russian industrial heartland. And that gets to be part of the argument between the two services. What the Air Force is not telling you is that they don't even know where the Russian targets are because our intel is so bad in the late 1940s, early 1950s. They're only guessing as to where this Russian industrial capacity is. So you're making it sound like there was no chance of winning a war if uh, one had one had come out. Is that kind of a fair yeah, well, assessment? It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that. There are two studies that are done. The, the Harmon report, which is done by an Air Force officer, Hubert Harmon, comes out uh, in the spring of 1949. And it basically says if you do an atomic offensive against the Russians, yeah, you're going to hurt them, but mostly you're just going to upset them. And to use a quote, you're going to convince them that we are the barbarians they think that we are and that it's not a war winner. Now, when the Air Force gets this, they're they're not really pleased with this report. But fortunately for the Air Force, at least in the summer of 49, there was another group coming around to do a scientific study of the latest war plan, the Weapon System Evaluation Group, the WSCG is stood up by James Forstall before you know he is removed as a Secretary of Defense and then jumps off the Bethesda Naval Hospital. But they put together a, a crew of academics uh, and military personnel to really review the current war plan and determine its effectiveness in deterring the Soviet Union or destroying the Soviet Union's military capacity. This is also going on during this fall period. And everybody's on pins and needles. The Air Force and the Navy are on pins and needles waiting to hear what the Weapon System Evaluation Group is going to say about the efficacy of the new war plans that are coming out. Half Moon is the one that's coming and off tackle. What are they going to say? Is this really going to be a war winner? And this is part of that whole debate in the fall of 1949, because we don't have the results yet. You know, and so the Air Force is kind of waiting to think that this WSEG group will provide it the answer that it needs, the concrete evidence that, yes, this will win a war. And the Navy's like, we don't think so. And so this only adds more fuel to the fire in the fall of 1949. The Weapon System Evaluation Group report won't come out until January of 1950. And even when its results come out, its results are not much different than the Harmon report. Matter of fact, there's a great vignette when Truman gets briefed about the Weapon System Evaluation Group report. He's in there with Secretary of Defense Lewis Johnson, who's probably got a screw loose. Um, but at any rate, that's beside the point. Johnson turns to Truman. He said, you got the report. See, that proves the B-36 is a good airplane. And Truman responds. He says, no, damn it. It said the direct opposite. You know, so there's still this equivocation over will atomic bombing of the Soviet Union be a war winner? And and nobody really has that answer. I know the Air Force thinks it has an answer, but there are those detractors who go, well, see, we've had two studies and none of them are, are slam dunks uh, with regard to what would happen in terms of winning a war. So not to get too far ahead of things, but what effect did that study or both of those studies have on Truman then? Is that his factors yeah. in, in how he wants to move forward? Absolutely. Uh, I think what it does is it, it tells Truman in, in his mind that 
we haven't thought about this. We really haven't thought about how we're going about with our defense policies, where we're spending our money, uh, what we should be doing for the long term, and are we putting our eggs in too much into the air basket? And so that definitely plays into how Truman sees this. And as you well know, the budget goes from about $13 billion in fiscal year 1949 up to $50 billion in one fiscal year. You know, And so he realizes that you just can't put all the money into nuclear bombers, but that you got to have a more measured, a more even-handed approach uh, to defense spending. Now, we know later on when, tr- when uh, Eisenhower comes in in 1954, you have the new look. And Eisenhower will do exactly that. He will put the money towards strategic bombers, but we're not there yet. You know, Truman is still saying that maybe we need to spread this money out a little bit more than, than what we're doing here. And that strategic bombing and this air-centric warfare is not necessarily the wave of the future. Right. So I want to jump back a little bit and, and get back into the B-36 and how the people that did not think it was the wave of the future were reacting to this. So yeah. the central event of the, of your book is this revolt of the admirals, and it's a very dramatic incident. Tell us a little bit about what is the revolt of the admirals? What goes down? What is all this drama? The revolt, which occurs in August or fall of 1949, really has its genesis in the springtime. The Army and the Air Force are feuding in 1947. They don't like, the Navy doesn't like unification and it doesn't like the front seat that the Air Force is taking in terms of national defense. Uh, so they're both putting out their own propaganda in 1948. Uh, they got the called the Battle of the Mimeograph Machines where they're both putting out propaganda. But the real crux begins is when after James Forrestal is removed and Lewis Johnson takes over as Secretary of Defense, there's a question about this new aircraft carrier called the USS United States. And Lewis Johnson promises the Secretary of the Navy, a guy by the name of Sullivan, that he will be happy to have an audience with him to talk about the future of the USS United States. Well, he lies never meets with Sullivan to talk about the USS United States, and he cancels it right out of the blue. Sullivan is very upset. He resigns. The the chief of naval operation, Lewis Denfield, thinks about resigning, but he decides to stay on to fight because Lewis Johnson is a fiscal hawk, and much like Truman was subsequent to the war to get defense spending down, he's going to do that. And Lewis Johnson's a man of a huge ego uh, who actually is thinking about a presidential run and he figures that if he can wrangle in the Department of Defense, this new Department of Defense that comes about, it'll be a good, good political feather in his cap. So he cancels the USS United States without talking to the Navy, and he's pushing for air power, again, because it's cheaper, uh, more bang for the buck, to use that phrase that comes about later. And so it really sets off a crisis within naval aviation. Because this was supposed to be the capstone flagship for the Navy, for naval aviation, as it moves forward into the jet age, as it moves forward into a more capable naval fleet. And as a result, naval aviators feel very slighted by not only the Secretary of Defense, but also by the president. And they're also cutting back on the number of air wings that the uh, Navy is going to have. And so, (laughs) in order to counter this slight of naval aviation, there's a, a gentleman who decides to make a, it's called the anonymous document, who's going to write a whole list of lies 
about the Secretary of the Air Force and the head of uh, Volte Aviation Industry and that these guys are in cahoots. It's all fake. It's all wrong. It's all made up. But this creates enough suspicion about the Air Force that causes an investigation to occur in the summer of 1949. And that really begins the revolt of the admirals. And the revolt occurs in the August of 1949 as they do an investigation into what's called the dirt sheet. And uh, they find out that all of it's fake. None of it's, you know, true. And the gentleman who wrote it admits to it. So the Navy walks out with egg on its face. The Air Force comes out vindicated, and it only serves to incense the naval aviators who don't think they're getting slighted anyway, even though it shouldn't have, that letter shouldn't have been written. So the Navy still feels slighted. So in September of 1949, another naval officer calls his own press conference and talks about how the naval aviation is being nibbled to death by the powers that be. This guy's name was John Cromwell. They called him Bomb Rem John because he's kind of an aggressive guy. And uh, he uh, gets put in hack for having his own press conference, speaking as a Navy representative when he is only an officer representing his opinion. And so the question is now, do we need to continue this investigation of the Air Force, given the fact that the dirt sheet is a falsified document? Cromerlin is afraid that they're going to cancel the rest of the investigation. So he returns to some shenanigans, and he finds a letter that is written by uh, some admirals to the chief of naval operations expressing their concern about Navy morale and how it's going in the tank because of what's happening to naval aviation. Well, this is a classified document, i.e. confidential, but still not for public release. Well, he gets a copy of it, and he takes it to the press offices, and he makes it public. <laughs> so as a result, the investigation is going to continue all through October of 1949. So by hook and by crook, the Navy is trying to find a larger venue to address what it sees as a slight at the hand of the Air Force, the Secretary of Defense, and the Truman administration. And the revolt occurs during October as both naval officers and Air Force officers testify in front of a special committee there on Capitol Hill. So what's the kind of final fallout of all that? How does that all? Yeah, it's a great question. The chief of naval operations gets fired. So there, <laughs> there's that. So the Air, Force, the Air Force wins again, but uh, in the long term, it actually works out for the Navy because it forces the United States to do a wholesale review of national security policy, uh, which is, of course, we know NSC 68. And so the Navy loses the battle, but it wins the war, if you want to mm -hmm. use those termino terminology, because they realize that maybe we need a, a wholesale review of American national security strategy, which is part and parcel of what NS 68 is about. Um, so this revolt of the admirals, the Air Force and the Navy going at it provides, you know, this high tension, you know, this high drama in front of the public in the fall of 1949. However, it's not the whole story. And that is probably the crux of my book that, yes, this is important, but there's a whole other argument that is occurring behind the scenes that most Americans don't know about in the fall of 1949. And that is? That is the thermonuclear decision. Yes. You know, before we get into the thermonuclear decision, it's just 
thinking about this revolt, it's always so amazing to me. And it's one of the things I love about studying history is we think that these big institutions are just kind of going along and they're these official bureaucratic type of things. But at their core, it's people with these emotions and their personalities and they're driven by the same kind of rivalries, just humans doing human stuff. Things. Yeah, good point. And it's it's just fascinating. And um, I wanted to ask you, but before we get into the thermonuclear bombs, because all of this is playing out in the public, I'm sure there's public reaction. And as you know, because uh, we've talked before, but I'm a nerd for cartoons and comic books and stuff like that. You have a lot of really fun cartoons in your book about this Navy Air Force rivalry. I was wondering if you had a sense of how the public was reacting to all this. Did, was the public taking sides or were they annoyed by the whole thing? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in looking at the, the polls, uh, like the Gallup polls at the time and with the, the narration that you see, I think most Americans are leaning towards the, the, the Air Force at this time because the atomic bomb and its threat features prominent in the American psyche. While we only have we have the monopoly, obviously, up until August of 49, we still have a little bit of hand-wringing as a nation, and this is my opinion, over this this horrible power that we own and we own alone. You know, should we use it? When should we use it? How do we use it? You know, but the fact that we use it to check a large red army and potentially a Chinese red army army uh, in the future. It's kind of like the, the the trump card for the, the American people. And so while they're, they're afraid of the power like a tiger by the tail, but they also see that this is the best bet for American security. And the, and the polls bear that out, that most Americans see the Air Force as ascendant and the traditional forms of warfare, naval and ground, as declining in influence. Right. So back to these new forms of warfare, and you mentioned thermonuclear weapons. What is it about those that makes it so important and different? And why is that an important thing that's going on behind the scenes? Because when the Soviets, you know, obviously, we sniff, the book starts off talking about sniffing out or finding the Joe One explosion, you know, at the end of August of 1949. And what's funny is when I was doing the research, as late as July of 1949, the Air Force is saying the Russians are still three years behind. They're not even going to produce one. This is just a month before. And so when this goes off, it's a shock. We expected the Soviets to indeed break the monopoly. That was going to happen. We were just surprised at the speed in which they did it. Uh, and I talk a little bit about that and how they just copied, you know, Klaus Fuchs's drawings in the Fat Man implosion bomb. But we're surprised about how fast that they did it. Of course, we have very little intel about the interior of the Soviet Union. So it comes as a shock. And the question that really shakes up the American defense establishment is, if the Russians are this fast with fission, what about fusion? Mm -hmm. In 1946, there's a conference at Los Alamos about fusion, the possibilities of fusion. And there's a number of scientists who, who think academically, yes, this is feasible. Yes, we should we can do these kinds of things. And they start working out some of the theoretical aspects you know, of a fusion event. And I'm not a physicist. I don't understand it. I just know that they're working the numbers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's as far as I'll go. However, they find out that one of the guys that they're investigating for espionage at this time, a guy named Klaus Fuchs, who has not been publicized yet, but this is in the fall of 49. They're starting to get wind of this guy. And they realize he was at the 1946 conference. If he gave them information on Fat Man, 
What did he tell them about fusion? And this gets to be a real concern. And the question that a lot of scientists and military men are asking is, if the Russians have a fusion bomb, which is megatons worth of explosive force, as opposed to kilotons worth of explosive force, that gives them a nuclear advantage, and we can't have that. And so this is the argument that is occurring underneath the surface of the revolt of the admirals, the Atomic Energy Commission, the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy in Congress, the State Department, the Department of Defense, the Atomic Energy Commission. Everyone is discussing about this idea of fusion. Should we indeed look to build a fusion weapon? Again, still a theoretical, so we're not quite sure this thing's even going to work. But there's a whole debate going on. And the uh, General Advisory Committee which of the Atomic Energy Commission, which is composed of a lot of the Manhattan Greybeards, unanimously rejected on moral grounds. One of the quotes they use is, um, it wasn't Oppenheimer, I think it was Fermi, says, I think I'm watching a horror movie all over again. We've already committed one Frankenstein, now we're going to build another one. And so this is that debate. However, there are those like Louis Strauss in the uh, Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, who want this bomb built. If the Russians have it, we certainly must have it. And what you see is a moral debate, a military policy debate, a, a fiscal debate. And this is all going beneath the surface because it's all classified. It's all secret. And what I add different to the narrative to get back to one of your first questions is most of your accounts of NSC 68, the narrative is the Soviet bomb, the establishment of the PRC, that drives NSC 68. And my argument is categorically, yeah, but this thermonuclear question is really the issue at hand. That is what causes Truman to say, we need to do a wholesale review. Because remember, he just got the, the Weapon System Evaluation Group report just three weeks before in the beginning of January. And so it's the thermonuclear question that's causing him a hard time that forces this review of national security policy. It's not the revolt of the admirals. It's not the Chinese. It's not the the Russian bomb. Those things help. Don't get me wrong. But at the core of this argument is thermonuclear weapons. Well, as you argue pretty persuasively, you're, you say that this time period for all these reasons is the groundwork for a new military tradition. So my last question is, how relevant is that for today? What is the legacy of this historical moment for us now, looking back? Yeah, great question. The legacy from this time is America will now not only be a global military power, and we still are today. We're much smaller than what we were, but we still are today. And I think subsequent to that, we will lead DOD, Department of Defense, military power will be a lead element in much of our diplomacy, and much of our international action. So what's going to happen is the United States will now use military power and wield it in an international environment much more at ease than it had prior to. As you well know, we're, we're isolationists up into the Second World War, and then, of course, we get involved. And we're trying to tear that military back down again to a small cadre army or Air Force and Navy. But the problem is we now have a global responsibility in, the, in this Cold War, which has never gone away. And nowadays, we often let the military be the lead. 
with disaster relief and humanitarian operations, show of force operations. And so I think the legacy of that is now the Department of Defense and people wearing utilities or flight suits are looked to more often as the solution or at least the initial response to any global contingency than they ever had before the 1950s. Right. Absolutely. So for those who want to dive into a little more of that, the book is Autumn of Our Discontent, Fall 1949 and the Crises in American National Security from Naval Institute Press. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Mike. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. My pleasure. And for those who want to dive into us a little more, I'm at mwhankins.com. All of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email or uh, submit an article for publication, please visit balloons2drones.com slash contact. Thank you, and we will see you next time.